0: Welcome to another episode of Captain Hunter's podcast, the podcast that is dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for your love, your attention, your patience, uh, your support. And I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Please make sure that you rate, subscribe, and share these episodes. Give us the good thumbs up. Let us become more. Uh, findable, if that's even a word, we, where our analytics are up and it's easier for persons to uh, access us and to find us when they do Google searches and things like that. And we accomplish that, of course, by you rating, subscribing, and sharing these episodes. Thank you so much in advance for your support. Um, so, we got a good episode for you today. We have a couple of volunteers from a secular organization. Uh, Tracy and Phil, I'm going to let them introduce themselves, but I wanted to do this because uh, in so much talk about what the police need to do and and everything like that, and what the uh, community uh, needs to do, uh, I really wanted to to talk about some of the community support mechanisms uh, that are out there, and so many times we see that so many people are dealing with so many different uh, trauma events homelessness, mental illness, uh, and so many different things out there that we need these types of support systems uh, that are going to help feed people, to help clothe people, help give people the mental uh, health and mental help that they need, and just so many different aspects uh, along the way. If we want the police to be better, uh, we need to have them focus on what their original mission is, and that's crime suppression, crime apprehension. And if they're out there doing all these other types of works. Uh, then we're never going to accomplish these things. Well, therefore, I reached out to uh, some volunteers or members of volunteer groups uh, Just to make sure that just to see uh, what they're doing and I want to challenge you the listener to see what you're doing uh, To help your community whether you're volunteering uh, your time your energy in or just giving money uh, to different organizations are you volunteering for uh, youth groups uh, in your local church Are you volunteering uh, in in different events that are going on around, going on around your neighborhood and community? Uh, If not, why not? Right. So we've got to make this world a better place. Therefore, we can reduce the crime rates uh, by by getting people the help that they need, uh, the assistance that they need and everything along those lines. So I'm going to jump right into the episode. Here is the interview with uh, Tracy and Phil, and uh, I really appreciate them coming on to the podcast. And uh, here we go. we're good to go thank you so much for uh coming on captain hunter's podcast i am here with phil and with tracy heroes of mine for uh, different reasons (laughs) but uh, thanks so much for coming on we're going to talk a little bit uh, to you guys about your foundational work but uh thank you guys so much for coming on
1: hey you're welcome thanks for inviting us
0: absolutely absolutely so we'll start with tracy if you would just tell us a little bit about yourself
1: yeah, so I've been involved with nonprofits for well over a decade. So I'm not really new to that and served on a board of directors for um nonprofits here in Austin and local groups. And I have been involved in public outreach and recently was invited to serve on the board of directors for Foundation Beyond Belief. And I think that notification is why you reached out to me. You were like, Oh, hey, I saw you.' You put up this notice that you've joined the board there and would you like to come on and talk about it and i said i would love to come on and talk about it um except that because i'm new i would feel more comfortable if someone who actually had a lot of experience with fbb would also be on with me so i suggested phil and he's come on and you know been glad to do this with me and phil is also local. Austin Foundation Beyond Belief, I should mention, is not a local uh, organization. It's actually um, international. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it just so happens that I live in Austin and Phil lives in San Antonio. And so we're just a couple hours away from each other and we see each other um, fairly frequently. As, you know, COVID is a little <laughs> a bit yeah. of a hamper. <laughs> uh, but he's involved in a lot of the charitable work that is supported by Foundation Beyond Belief, um, and he coordinates in Central Texas between different groups that all participate in a lot of his volunteer efforts. And additionally, just to embarrass Phil or toot his horn or whatever, he got Volunteer of the Year from Foundation Beyond Belief. I think that was last year. Was that right? 2020?
2: Well, I think it was 2019. because Okay. To, to so start.
1: in the last couple of years, he, he was awarded the Volunteer of the Year because of all of his volunteer efforts. And he is just a volunteer juggernaut. And I get tired just watching his posts and everything that he does. <laughs> so the short form of my history with Foundation Beyond Belief is that I sort of knew them incidentally as a related group. To some of the groups that I served on, and their mission was just a, a humanist sort of perspective of the world, where they were they were at that time acting as a hub for charities that were like inclusive secular charities. They weren't really affiliated with any particular groups or religions. It was just an a broad umbrella, you know, group to help people just as outreach for um, charitable efforts and. Ah, uh, relief efforts, things like that, and a lot of times people would say, "Where can I, you know, where can I find a, a charitable cause that isn't necessarily affiliated with something that I might not um, want to necessarily affiliate or associate with? That's more like just open." And so, Foundation Beyond Belief was really good about providing those sorts of charitable options for people to donate or to volunteer. And in the meantime, their mission has shifted a little bit where from my understanding at this point, they're more focused on things like food insecurity, housing insecurity, um, sustainable efforts, uh, environmental efforts, things like that that are more of a a global outreach. And and they also, weirdly, um, although they're going for like this more sort of, you know, things that are pressing the globe right now, they're also looking for community outreach. So they're trying to do more like, inter-community work where communities sort of uh, facilitate their own efforts and then Foundation Beyond Belief is there to support as opposed to lead. And, Phil, you can correct me if I'm wrong. This is my understanding, though, of of sort of how it's been presented to me.
0: Yeah, we'll go to you, Phil. Yeah, thank you.
2: (laughs) That that sounds about right, what she's saying, just to uh, introduce myself a little bit. I kind of... Goodness, I guess it was back in 2013 or so I started looking around for more com- community service oriented activity. This you know, just and in the outset, it was just looking for activities, you know, looking for someone who was coordinating or organizing something that I could be a part of and wanting to make whatever small impact that I could do that. And as I was searching around, you know, in San Antonio and I started kind of looking at Austin because it's not a far drive away. It's a fairly close, you know, for, for it's for Texas, it's close, (laughs) Uh, but it's, I started seeing that, you know, there were some opportunities there, but there could be so much more in local community groups. And so I started kind of taking the reins a little bit to see like, Hey, I could, coordinate this effort or with the food bank, I could set up this particular opportunity for, you know, the community here. And maybe would people be interested in that? And it turns out people were, and that's how it kind of got started. It was just this kind of accidental thing, (laughs) almost just starting small and saying, okay, well, what can we do this? Well, what about kids? And starting to research and see what, what could we do with kids to incorporate them into some of these activities too. And it just kind of, Built up from there. But um, I'm involved currently with groups in Austin and in San Antonio. And my focus has really been around that community service effort and really being an advocate for the impact and importance that local boots on the ground individuals can have on their local communities that know the communities the best, that can be the quickest to adjust to changing dynamics, whether it be emergency situations or in Texas, the winter storm that happened, you know, they're the quickest to be able to adapt to what's happening and understand what the need is and implement something into action right there. But for Foundation Beyond Belief, I I heard it. I had heard of the group, kind of what Tracy said, you know, they were kind of a group that was Kind of on the outside, like I knew that they existed. I knew that they did good work, but I wasn't really involved in this until I was deployed with the Humanist Disaster Recovery Team to Denham Springs, Louisiana. So this was post the flooding that happened out in Louisiana, and it wasn't you know it wasn't a big hurricane event. It was just a culmination of lots of water and the correct uh, the correct conditions for what was called a 500 year storm. And it dropped 31 inches of water around Baton Rouge uh, area and devastated so many homes to where they had to be gutted and demolished and essentially rebuilt. And so Foundation Beyond Belief actually partnered with all hands and hearts to go out and you know, send volunteers out on the ground. And for the first time in my life, I had helped to lay floor tile. For example, I had never done this thing in my life. And I was just like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to mess it up in uh, this floor. Like I've, I've been on tile floors that have been all whacked. <laughs> so I don't want to be, uh, but they taught me how to do it. And I was also deployed after Hurricane Harvey in Houston to help put up insulation on a school building that had been flooded out and all the insulation needed to be torn out and redone. And so that was really my introduction to Foundation Beyond Believe, getting in on those projects and doing things that I had never done and having an amazing time with people that, you know, you're volunteering with the people whose house you're helping to rebuild. You know, it was an amazing it was an amazing opportunity. And I ended up joining the board in the summer of twenty nineteen. As a matter of fact, uh, when Claire, the board chair, asked me to uh, join up, I said, sure, because I'd known about this wonderful work. I would loved it. And so it was definitely something I wanted to be a part of.
0: Mm. Uh, before we continue on with that, I, I want to know how come part of you, your uh, helping these people wasn't just flying them down to Cancun, Mexico? Uh, was that <laughs> why, why was that not part of the
2: was not on the agenda? <laughs> not on the agenda. <laughs> oh, my oh, Texas, and oh, there's there's so much. <laughs> What is wrong with that know.
0: senator, huh? I mean, he's just unbelievable. Um, I
1: don't know. And then he <laughs> went on to make a joke about it at C- his CPAC speech. Uh, I I can't, I can't believe it. It's unfathomable to me.
2: It's it's pretty unreal, given what you see on the ground and everything that was happening. It was just, oh, it's just amazing to see, and all of the all the story and the backstory, and all of his. Well, it, I was just dropping him off, you know. Just drop so, it on him off and I was going to come back that type I, of thing. And it
0: was I do that all the time. You guys don't do that, you know? Just drop your kids off in, in Cancun, Mexico, and then come back. Like, oh boy! And then come back and make and make speeches about it and jokes about it to your coworkers and to uh, It's just yeah. It's I don't know. And, and he'll get voted back in again. That's the crazy thing. So I don't know.
1: I really Um, hope not. Um, I know that, (laughs) and that's, I guess that's me personally speaking. I'm not speaking as a representative of Foundation Beyond Belief um, just to be clear, but uh, I know that Beto O'Rourke ran against him the last time he ran and it was surprisingly close yeah so I have my fingers crossed that all of this crass vulgarity that he is counting on to sweep him back into office will not work. I mean, these are statewide elections, so hopefully, I mean, he doesn't have this sort of gerrymandered constituency he can uh, rely on like our House members. so i'm I'm hoping this will catch up with him in his next bid. I mean, he might be not running again, going for president. Depends, I guess, on what happens.
0: Oh, well, I I thought he was – we're getting really political here. I guess I started this. I I, I mean, he's got to deal with Donald Trump again, right? I mean, he's got to – this guy's –
1: Well, uh, I mean, we don't know. (laughs) Nobody knows if Trump's going to run again or if he just wants to sit on the sidelines now and exert. Uh,
0: I I would almost guarantee he's going to run again. I almost (laughs) guarantee that. Yeah, he's he's got a problem. You know, he's got a problem,
2: so, and he, he has a lot of influence over what yeah. where things are going to go with the huge swath of the nation. So yeah, it's going to play yeah. a part, whatever it is.
0: Yeah. So uh you guys actually care, and and stayed in Texas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> didn't didn't fly out the country. Uh, so just talk to us. Uh, I, I'll give it to you, Tracy. How, um, you know, how did you develop this, this, this heart to care about people, their circumstances and all that? I mean, why not just I, run oh away?
1: boy, What a great <laughs> question. And I don't, I, the, I wish I had a really good answer, but I mean, the fact is when I was younger, I guess I always cared. I had this sort of soft spot for animals, but I really wasn't that empathetic toward people. And even now as an adult, I'm not sure that I empathize in the way that a lot of people do. But what I've learned is how I've had some really great friends who have stuck with me and taught me how to unlearn a lot of the things that I've learned being a person of privilege. And they have allowed me to expand my perspective. And it's I come, I think, more from a place of I don't, I don't, I, probably my upbringing, I, I'm kind of, people don't believe this about me, but I'm, I'm kind of an angry person. <laughs> and so I am motivated more by anger. And so when I see something that to me just seems unfair, it's, you know, I might have a reaction where it makes me sad or heartbroken, but Nine times out of 10, I have a reaction where I just get outraged, where I just feel anger and where I just don't like seeing something that is grossly unfair or where people are marginalized or where people are not treated the way that a human being should be treated and not given the opportunities that everyone else has. And the more that I've begun to understand the level of my opportunity in life, the the more I've had to question what would my life be without that? Mm. And that, I think, is, is what has caused me the most growth as far as how I view people and how I view the world as it is and as I wish it was or think it should be. And I know that not being involved doesn't help. So if you wanna see something different, then you have to make sure that you're doing something to bring awareness to the problem, that you're participating in solutions. And that's not something that I think I always really understood. I, I was a, I'm a very introverted person, so I'm not like out and social, like Phil's kind of different. He's way more out there and way more the people person and you know just very energetic around other people. And so for me, I think it was kind of a growth and a learning experience. It wasn't something that just came naturally to me, but ultimately I did learn to understand that people, everyone deserves to be treated like a human being and to have respect and to have participation and opportunity and where that's not happening, people are responsible for making it happen. And especially the people who contributed to the problem the most. So I feel like I have an obligation to correct the things that I have for the first part of my life probably, or not probably, but surely participated in not helping or making things worse. So I just really want to make things better and do what I need to do to try to undo some of the things that I see that have been done.
0: Hmm. Certainly um, the people who are Causing the problem, I mean, they would have a difficulty and tried to correct the problem. They're right there, that's the a cause of it. But I think I see your point there. That you know, <laughs> as human beings, we're probably all you know doing a bunch of crazy stuff. That's
1: right. <laughs> but I do feel like the people who contribute the most to inequities are most obliged to make it right. The same way if I had a car accident where it was my fault and I did harm or damage to somebody, I would feel obliged to, to correct it. I would feel like it's my obligation as the person that caused it to, to try to make it as right as I could.
0: Uh, well, I wish that everybody thought like you. I, I really do. Um, I just don't think that that's. And, and fortunately, fortunately, I mean, you're, you're doing it and you you not only are talking it, but you but you signed up for this organization. And it sounds like you've been doing it most of your life and trying to make a difference you know, and I appreciate your anger, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Phil, how, how did you develop this, uh, your sense of, uh, humanity?
2: I, I think for me, uh, it's not a, I, I don't know. It's, as Tracy said, it's not really a good answer for me. It was more along the lines of understanding and realizing that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be on this planet for, you know, maybe if I'm lucky, you know, 60 more years, something like that. You know, this small span of time that I have to be present on this planet to interact with people, to, to love, you know, to cherish, to, you know, have bonds that can last for this small amount of time that I have on there. And so does all the people I interrupt, uh, I interact with. And so the people that I see when I'm, know driving to work and they're living under the bridge, you know, that it's the same, it's the same situation for them. They have this small amount of time on this planet, you know, to live their lives. And it was just kind of a realization for me that I hadn't really thought of before when I was in university or whatever else, that if I only have this span of time, if I only have this slice to work with on the planet, what in the world am I going to do with it? You know, if, if this is all I have, what are we going to do? You know, what 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 is there out there to do? and what that manifested for me? Because I'm sure that that kind of notion may mean different things to different people, of mm-hmm. course, depending on your experience and everything else. But for me, it was there's all of these folks around that we see day in and day out that need assistance, you know, whatever that might be, food insecurity, housing insecurity, you know, there's there's so many different inequities that you can v- visually see if you were to take the time to look. So what can I do in my small capacity? Because I'm I'm not a rich person. I don't have, <laughs> I don't have those means like that uh, as I would really want to really make a larger impact. But what can I do from my perspective? And so that was. At first, to start engaging in community service in general, let's. I started going to food banks. I started cleaning up uh, the trash that gets floated down in the river where people would go down and uh, bathe in different parts of San Antonio to mm. use that water. And if when the water drains out, when it's dry and you go out there, you see just how much trash gets built up and gets snagged all along the sides of the riverbank. So it's like 50 of us with bags trying to clean out you know, this huge natural part of our city where the water is flowing, especially when it rains, and it has all of this mess in it needles, what have you, it's all kinds of things you find in there. But it also started translating over to looking at the unhoused community uh, in both San Antonio and Austin to see, well, what can be done? What programs are in place? Where are the gaps that are in that program? What are they waiting on? What are the artificial barriers that are in place that are stopping them from moving from that situation to a house situation, whether it be temporary, transitional, or a permanent supportive housing environment. And it's just kind of steamrolled from there. And not only looking at myself, but also people that are around me that do want to help, but don't know how. And the effort that they can bring to the table if they were given the opportunity to do so is something that you shouldn't overlook. And so that's what really started my organizing around and, and kind of putting it out there on social media and saying, hey, on this date, at this time, you can come down here to help with this particular effort. This is what it looks like. This is what you will be doing. And people actually it resonated with people and people responding to it. It became something that was worthwhile for me to continue on, even though it was a lot of hard work. You know, I still work full time in my, you know, my bill paying job, <laughs> that side of things. But. It was so important seeing the smiles on the people that volunteer, the folks that we help, uh, folks that I see every month that know my name, I know their name, I get to learn their story. And especially the unhoused in Austin where you get to see that folks are just like you, they just had this one circumstance being laid off and not being able to catch up by the time they got evicted and then the snowball started rolling and they were unable to escape that snowball and ended up in an unhoused situation waiting on assistance and waiting to get into a program to change that. And so uh, there was a long a long way to say <laughs> that it's it's been a journey for me but it started just as simply as understanding that I only have this small amount of time to make an impact on myself, those around me while I'm on this planet, while I'm on this earth. So what now? What do we do? That's how it all kind of started for me.
0: And so again, I applaud both of you. And I think that those, you know, I really wish that people would listen to that and um, adopt that philosophy that you only have a certain amount of time and get angry, even if you're an introvert <laughs> about the present circumstances that people are, are living in. Um, I too, uh, I, I think that I share actually your anger, uh, Tracy, about a lot of the different things that I've, that I've seen. Um, you know, I don't like when people um, I, I had this thing, and people would tease me when I back when I was working. I, you know, I always said, you know, I had this thing for the innocent, I meaning little kids, uh, the elderly, uh, the mentally um, incapacitated, and animals. You know, I, I don't like I don't like when people take advantage of those particular groups of people. You know, and uh, it really really bothers me. And I wish that I had you guys' patience to get out there and do something about it, you know, especially after your bill paying job because I'm ready to sit back on the couch and, and do nothing. But to yeah. go out there and clean up and, and to actually do something about it is is, is certainly something that, that 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 says a lot about your character and I hope that other people develop that drive and that goals as well.
1: Well I think it's it's kind of two different aspects of it, right? So I my focus is usually on outreach and promotion. Like what could I do to get the word out? Mm. And I think um when I think about Phil, I think about how driven he is to just get out there. He just does. Right. So Phil will get out there and do, and also big hearted. Like I don't, I think Phil is probably the the person with the biggest heart that I've ever seen. Like, I don't know that I've ever met anybody as, as just big hearted as Phil and, and anybody is that's that driven to just do good. Um, I, I can't I can't take credit for what Phil is talking about. What he's doing is what he's doing. I'm way more into the how can I connect people? How can I network people that can help bring attention to things like what Phil is doing. So it's I guess it takes all kinds, but I t- I really have a lot of respect for for the way that Phil goes about this.
2: Yeah, I definitely I definitely would agree that it takes all kinds and because not everybody ha- can take off work for example to go volunteer to do something cuz i i've taken off just last week i took off uh, you know pieces of days a whole day to go hand out water for those that have bust- busted pipes here in san antonio there's still people that don't have water in their house and <laughs>
0: well they should just fly to cancun i mean they got you know they got yeah. plenty
2: of water down there
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let them drink champagne, right? That that would be the the equivalent, right, of the let them eat cake.
2: Yeah, but it's just, it's, I, you know, what Tracy's talking about, the outreach and promotion, that's also a huge part because there are people that may want to do more. And they, as I said, they don't know how. And that seems so weird because you're living in, in the information age. The internet is there at your fingertips. But there are people that don't know where to start, you know, they may have an organization in their mind and they may say, okay, I'll donate a little bit to that organization and be done, but they still want to do more. They just don't know how to get that framework started, you know, to really, you know, get their hands in if they have that ability to do so. And so, you know, putting to the bullhorn, you know, these opportunities, like, you know, if you want to show up to this, like my, I went to a crisis food distribution this past, just uh, two days ago on Friday and, was able to feed or help to feed thirteen hundred families Ooh. that came through over the course of three hours. Like it, it was over seventy five thousand pounds of food altogether that was distributed during that event. Like so it was, and the line, just the line you saw lining up early to try to make sure they got a chance to get in because it was one huge line that we split into six lines and they came down and it was all of these stations, you know, 200 some odd people there volunteering just to hand out all of these things into the back of people's trunk uh, as they rolled through. And it was just a constant stream of vehicles. And that need you see was so pronounced as you roll through. And, you know, those opportunities are out there and If we didn't have outreach, if you didn't have somebody putting out those messages to say, this is what's going on. And if you want to help, this is how you can do it. You know, it doesn't take a lot. It's a small bit of time. If you have the ability, the physical ability and the ability to take off work, you can do this. And even if you can't, if you're available on the weekends, here are other ways you can get involved directly. And if you can't, Mm -hmm. you can always donate because that Mm -hmm. always helps. You know, so it takes all kinds of people in so many different facets of life to tackle these huge problems that we see around. There is not a single group or a single individual that's gonna be able to do it all. It's gonna take all of us putting our heads together, coming up with ideas and solutions, looking at the data, what affects people and in what way, what works and what doesn't, refining those methods to better target these insecurities and inequities that we see all around us.
0: And so the foundation uh, can you talk a little bit more about the foundation? I'll give it to you, Phil. Um, it's an international. Uh, how long this has it been in operation? Can mm-hmm. you talk to us a little bit about it?
2: Sure. So Foundation Beyond Belief was founded in 2009. And, you know, at that time, I'm not sure if uh, Dale, who helped to found the organization back then, had any idea about what it would eventually kind of grow into be because now it's it's sitting You know, it's given, I think, over well over a million dollars out to different uh, charities around the world. But, you know, the outreach that's there and the way that it's targeted, it's it's changed so much over time. I I talked about earlier the Humanist Disaster Recovery Program. That was a program meant to help in different places, being able to deploy where natural disasters might occur, uh, to have volunteers at your fingertips partnering with organizations like All Hands and Hearts to directly impact, you know those areas, to help rebuild houses or whatever uh, that was helpful to that area. But there's also other aspects of it, like the get, the grant program, where there will be groups that grants are awarded to, you know, on a yearly basis, on a quarterly basis, uh, that are doing good work in the world. And so one of those, um, are places like, so the Tan uh, the Tandana Foundation, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, they were a Compassionate Impact Grant Award recipient uh, several years ago. And that program was actually targeting uh, women in Mali. So this is in uh, Western Africa, where they would, you know, bring in people, 600 women from 20 villages uh, there in Mali, um, Mali for literacy and numeracy classes, essentially trying to you know, get them to be more independent. Um, there would be workshops there that would help uh, people uh, help the women that were in the program to build leadership skills, uh, to come up with ideas, to come up with income-generating uh, plans. And uh, Tandana would also uh, would select some of those plans that some of the uh, the women in the program would come up with to actually put them into action, to actually implement them, give them funding, give them support, to try to get them to a a source of uh, independency for themselves. And so that was it's uh, similar to the program that we have that's currently going on right now in Ghana, uh, where we have like vocational training programs uh, out there in Ghana, which are doing the same thing that are helping to lift uh, people in that area to a point of independence, of income generation, to dramatically change what their situation is currently and help it maintain that for the future. Uh, going forward, so that's kind of that international uh, in parts, but the other portion, which I'm a uh, part of, and I've kind of talked about a little bit, was the Beyond Belief uh, Network program, and so there is a program of that helps us support local community groups. And so, you know, think about, you know, your local community. You may have a small group that goes out once a month uh, to go you know, clean up an area or go distribute food to unhoused persons that are living under a bridge or something like that. And so that BBN program actually helps to support those individual groups that are scattered all around the US. And I believe there's a few over in uh, Southeast Asia right now, if I'm not mistaken, uh, with grants To help. And so just this past week, uh, for the winter storm that happened here in Texas, uh, there was a campaign that ramped up all of a sudden, you know, it was just in a few days, it ramped up, that uh, garnered donations of over $17,000 that was distributed to local community teams in Dallas, in Austin, in San Antonio, to help with unhoused persons to keep warm, to keep people in hotels that couldn't afford like when their pipes burst or their power was out. Um, there was a group out in Austin, uh, the Austin Humanist at work that helped to keep 16 people in a sheltered environment, in this case a motel, when their homes were uninhabitable for a time, for example. And so they did that by getting a grant from FBB through this program to do so. Uh, Some of my groups, like we're going out. uh, We went out just yesterday, as a matter of fact, here in San Antonio to distribute tents and sleeping bags to people that are out on the street. We went down to the downtown area where, you know, Frio and Houston and downtown San Antonio. That's where the largest population is to give out food, water, power aid, all that kind of stuff out there for people that were struggling. And it's when you see it in person, it's so different than when you see it on the news or on a picture or something like that, when you're actually interacting with people and hearing what they're telling you about what they're going through, it's a whole different dynamic that you experience when you go uh, down there and it just motivates you to do more. <laughs> and so, you know, FBB, that BBN program really helps with those local groups being able to do more. They also, you know, along with grants, they may give uh, social, like, you know, the bullhorn that we were talking about before uh, you can, Contact FBB to say, hey, we're doing this event. Could you promote it? And they can actually put that out on blast on social media and the newsletter, stuff like that, to get that word out there to people that may not know that there's something going on in that area, you know, more so that you can do by yourself as an independent group. Yeah. Uh, so there's and, a lot of, yeah, go for it.
1: Just to say, no, uh, one of the things that uh, Phil mentioned was the Compassionate Impact Grant. And my understanding is that part of what the, the shift in their focus is going to be, um, as they're moving toward more, like fewer but more specific areas of effort is trying to raise more money to give larger grants. So with the Compassion Impact Grant, instead of handing out like lots of small grants, they're like, we really want to have a big impact in, in areas that will be, you know, the, the most helpful, um. So they're really looking at the compassion Impact Grant going forward as something to expand on um, financially. So right now they're just like, how can we start raising money to make these grants larger, to have more impact? Mm-hmm. Which I think is going to be a, kind of an interesting thing to see because obviously a group that gets like a really large grant, um, that's going to be something that would be super helpful to them.
2: Right. It, it could change the whole way that they think about how much impact they can have. And so you have the CIG program that, you know, uh, one of the ideas was to rather than giving a single grant, you know, to say, okay, we're going to give this, you know, smaller grant, it, it's still maybe 10,000 or 15,000, something like that. But to say, we're going to do a larger grant over the course of three years. So they, they would have three years of grants coming in to specific organizations to make sure that they have some st- st- sustainability because when you just get one grant, you know, your concern is, well, will we have this money next year to continue this program that we're doing? You know, will we have to shutter this or scale it back because we don't have that support going forward? And so one of the ideas with CIG to say, okay, let's go over several years, you know, in differing amounts going in those years to support this program. And hopefully by the end of that third year, they would have established this program that they can keep it going, that they can show the efficacy of their work to their donors and to get more sustainable funding as time goes on uh, for that program. And so it's a longer term approach to the same thing that's been done for years, but just in a in a longer stretch to make it more viable for years and years down the road. Mm.
0: Very good. Uh, I was actually going to ask you how this w- was funded. And so it's all through government grants. Is that it's a, it, that's correct, What right? well, you it's mean? Well,
1: what we're talking about are actually grants that the that Foundation Beyond Belief gives out.
0: So these oh. are grants
1: that they're actually giving to groups. Oh, um,
0: okay. Foundation
1: wow. Beyond Belief has has different revenue streams. So obviously we have um, like small recurring donors. Okay. And, you know, people that are like, hey, I donate $20 a month or, you know, something like that. And then, there, of course, there are larger donors that they also have that support the efforts. Um, and then there's grants uh, income as well. So Foundation Beyond Belief, because it is a charitable group, charitable group itself gets, can qualify for grants. And then what they do is they have a mission where they're distributing grant money as well. So they're taking in funding and then they're distributing this funding in association with their mission.
0: Oh, wow, Okay. Wow. Okay. Well, that's even better.
2: Yeah, all all of that. Yeah, all of that, what I was referring to the Compassionate Impact Grants. Yeah, that was all coming from FBB. Oh, Uh, I thought you were uh,
0: we're receiving it from the government and then dispersing it. I mean, well,
1: we're we're receiving funding for sure, donations and also grants. and And then, Foundation Beyond Belief, like they use that to then go and fund other programs.
0: Very so good. they're
1: working um, like making partnerships with community groups. That's what Phil was describing. So they'll go out and say they want to work with a small community group and and make more networking um, so that we. So Foundation Beyond Belief, like Phil was describing, they can bring attention to a smaller community group. And then that small community group can take that back and sort of bring attention to Foundation Beyond Belief. So it's this sort of reciprocal relationship where you know, each side is bringing attention to the other side so that we can generate funding and generate publicity and bring attention to these issues, as well as um, resources that can actually improve the situations.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. How how large is the organization, whether it's here in the States or in Texas or across the world? I mean, can you give us any numbers about how many people are volunteering their time?
2: Oh, goodness. Um, I believe... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I'll have to look now. I know for the Beyond Belief Network. So these are the all of the local groups that are spread around the U.S. Mm-hmm. Some over mm-hmm. in Southeast Asia. I believe there's just under 150 individual groups that are spread out that receive uh, benefits. So whether these are grants, whether these are, are t-shirts, like you know my group up in Austin, you know we got free t-shirts just for doing volunteer events. You know, mm-hmm. which is not something that we can really do on our own. <laughs> that mm-hmm. type of thing, and so it really helps out. Know those small groups with identification and pride, really, in uh, those local groups there. But uh, I wish you. I wish I could give you some.
1: It's hard, I think, because it's there's a lot of networking involved, right? So people. It's not so much that. It's not like um, so much that Foundation Beyond Belief is like sending out people as as they're networking. With community groups, so there'll be an existing community group that has an effort that they're working on, and then Foundation Beyond Belief will come in and say, "We can help support this." Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you let people know we're helping you, you, um, and we will bring attention to your your uh, effort and also help fund that effort. So there's a lot of ways that that this you know, kind of, like I say, the the two groups can really bring attention to each other and do a reciprocal kind of thing. The larger Foundation Beyond Belief gets, the more groups it can outreach and help. And so everybody gets sort of something out of this, which I think is the really cool thing about it is that it's sort of helping each other. So you've got the larger group that that helps the smaller groups and the smaller groups can help by, by just letting people know, hey, you know, Foundation Beyond Belief is helping us out here and is behind this. So, as we get attention at the association, then people are more likely to donate, and then we can distribute more.
0: And so, as as it as it the name says, Foundation Beyond Belief, right? So there's a there's a an, an inclusiveness to this organization, right? You don't have to be of a specific religious background or uh, um, correct. Know, or,
1: it it's basically they call it a humanist mission, right? So it's just about helping just helping people um, to find a better circumstance, helping people in need, really.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and that's uh, to give you a little bit more color on the, I guess the size, it's, it's harder to do, but like for you know, 2020, there were over $110,000 of grants that went out to uh, organizations around the world through grants from FBB, if that gives you a better idea.
0: Uh, of, no, uh,
2: some of the sizes there.
0: <laughs> no, no. I, listen, every every little bit helps, and I, I'm right. I'm glad that people are doing. It. I'm glad that people want to volunteer and, and and do what you're doing. I mean, I think that that's that's wonderful. Um, is there a sense of uh, a, a burnout uh, to people who are who are so compassionate that they're giving, and yet m- maybe they see that you know some things aren't getting any better, right? I mean, it's one thing to it's one thing to always. Uh, uh, you know, go and feed the homeless or try to get them um, uh, shelter. Um, mm-hmm. but you, you feel like it's a band aid. Well, let me talk about this first of all. Is it a band aid? Second of all, is there a burnout to, to it? People just like, listen, I can't do this anymore because I'm so burnt out. So,
2: but. yeah, I think I had uh, if Tracy doesn't mind. I, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, go for it. So, I would definitely say that there is an element of that burnout, and that and that's you know to every individual because everyone gets tired. You know, when you are doing so much work and you're seeing situations that are not improving as fast as you think they should, you know, considering what's going on, it it can really have an effect on your outlook to say, like, okay, well, what the heck am I really doing here? You know, that, that kind of thought still can creep in. You know, we're human. You know, we feel uh, things as we're going. Even if we're doing good work, that's still a feeling that can creep in. But, you know, for me, especially up in Austin... It was really about understanding what my role is in the, you know, continuum of care. That's what it's called um, in a certain specific area. And so, I understand that my local group there in Austin, our role is to help make uh, people's lives easier that are waiting to get pulled into the shelter mm-hmm. program, the transitional housing program, the different housing programs that are available in that area. Because while there are so many. Entrances to homelessness, to the state of homelessness, there are too few exits from it, and so inevitably you're going to get a bottleneck. At some point, there's going to be a bottleneck in that process, and so you know, as even though you know my group has been operating in Austin since 2009 as well, uh, I joined the Ending Community Homelessness Coalition uh, there in Austin just a few years ago, and this is the the. Basically, a seat at the table where all of the providers of the continuum of care. So we're talking about all the foundation communities, which is the permanent support of housing sole provider in the Austin area. You have transitional housing. You have medical providers. The VA is there at the table. The city and the county also has representatives that sit at that table. You know, it's bringing everybody's uh, heads together and looking at the data of what's happening. But it's it does get frustrating. Like one statistic out of Austin is you know, the population of African-Americans in particular is less than 10% uh, on that side, but represent almost 40% of those experiencing homelessness. And that was done, I believe those were numbers coming out of 2019, uh, the last time I saw those. And so it's, you see the disparities that are there, the folks that are younger, uh, LGBT, you have all of these different uh, groups that are out there in disproportionate ways. And it does hurt to see that things are not progressing, but in joining that effort, and by vocalizing some of those situations that we see on the ground, we can, you know, make sure that the people, it, the powers that be, if you will, uh, that are, you know, get multi-million dollar budgets and have huge buildings and all this stuff, know about what the situation is on the ground. Uh, mm. The program that we instituted, you know, just a few years ago, to provide bus passes. So these are month-long bus passes to people uh, that are unhoused. Two hundred of them every three months. Uh, so effectively absorbing about a third of their travel to take that worry away about how to get to this appointment, how to get to their caseworker, how to get to work and get back. Uh, There's so many services in Austin, but you need to get to them. And if you're walking in the rain or whatever else, it's going to take you time. You're going to look a certain way when you get there. There's so much that goes on. uh, Those artificial barriers that make things harder to escape that unhoused situation. And so, you know, being able to advocate and to try to advocate for those changes to happen, to get more permanent supportive housing, which is the best program that you can to uh, permanently move people from an unhoused environment to a housed environment for the long term and have the best outcome rates uh, based on the statistics that I reviewed uh, back in late 2019 at an ECHO meeting, uh, you know, that that's what you're fighting for. And so it's not just going out and, you know, doing this particular work and then going back home and just repeating ad nauseum. Uh, for me, it's also about advocating for some of the policymakers, people that are making the decisions that have the budgets to do larger, grander things that can really make a change. And, you know, without that uh, without that force, that advocacy that's there, the city of Austin may have never purchased hotels like they just did. They just bought several hotels to act as uh shelters for people that are living unhoused to bring them off out of the street and let them stay there for an extended period of time. Those kinds of things, you know, ha- ha- having a housing first mentality uh, regarding homelessness, you know, it's it takes a lot of work and it's a lot of effort. You need the government's help in a lot of cases because it's so hard to fund these large programs to get space, you know, to acquire a building, you know, you know it's, oh, goodness, it's just the, the, all of the stop gaps in the way. But You know, it fills me with pride to be able to help out in that advocacy, even though I'm sure my impact is as small as can be comparatively with some of these larger larger organizations. I know that the people I interact with and the stories of theirs that I help bring to the folks that make the decisions make an impact there uh, and can hopefully benefit folks going forward. And so to me, it's still worth it. Maybe I might burn out one day. Totally a thing. I'm just a human, you know, <laughs> so it may happen. But for right now, you know, we're in it. <laughs> uh,
0: and for you, Tracy, he uh, uh, talked about the burnout thing. Um, do you think that some of this is is just a a, a band aid? And I hate to be pessimistic, but this is this this is something I struggle with being pessimistic. Uh, you know, when you see people on the street, homeless people on the street. Um, or, or and for the variety of reasons whether right or they've been kicked out because they are gay or, or or whatever and all this kind of crazy nonsense that people do um, but then we see well I don't want to get too political but then we see you know our government you know go and bomb Syria you know we, we've got millions of dollars <laughs> you know is this is just a band, we're not we're not you know it's one thing to give uh, people homeless people a, a shelter for a night or a couple nights. Or give or, or 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 feed them, you know, feed the hungry. But we're not solving we're not solving any problems. I mean, right? If
1: you're asking me, <laughs> if I had a magic wand and could make the <laughs> government um, use the tax dollars effectively to actually address these problems, of course my answer would be yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think what Phil is describing, though, is you have to look at the reality of a situation, which is. There are, like he said, very few exits from being unhoused and a lot of entrances to get there. So it's much easier to become, you know, to, to end up unhoused than it is to get out of it. And so the, the way he's describing looking at this is if I look at this situation as being an interim between the person becoming unhoused and getting them back into being in a housed situation where is the resource best spent and so for him he's describing it's best spent in in looking at ways to help them get to their to their case workers you know to get to get in into those meetings that they need to get to those appointments that they need to keep Making the, the bus passes was a new thing that I had just heard about um, from Phil recently. And so that's great because it gives them an opportunity to get downtown or to get to a county seat or wherever they need to go uh, from where they are. And as he's saying, when you have to walk there, if you know, you've got inclement weather, or even if it's just a hot day in Texas, and you're walking to your appointment by the time you get there you're just going to be a mess as opposed to somebody that maybe you know has a little bit more together when you go in and you can meet somebody when you feel a little bit better about being able to make that appointment instead of additional stress of wondering how you're going to get there or can you get there on time or can you even get there at all today so when you when you can alleviate some of the stresses that a person is under when they're under that level of stress, I think you're improving the odds that they're going to find an outcome that gets them out of this. It's certainly going to be much harder when there's less resource, right? So if you have the more resources you can throw at the interim to make life comfortable until they can find a way out of this, you're You're doing something there, especially when you're focusing on which resources are going to be most helpful in achieving that end goal of getting them out of houselessness
0: yeah, yeah is the group involved at all with legislation uh trying to change some of the uh, laws uh, is-
2: yes. well for uh for Austin's side, so the Indian community homelessness coalition that's you know, the the main branch that can really advocate. So they're the ones that have the largest voice with the city and the county officials. But you know, they're they'll be hamstrung in certain cases. So the Texas, Texas passed a law a couple of years ago that said that well, local taxing jurisdictions cannot increase their budget but by a certain percentage per year as they go forward. And so one of the echo meetings. I think it was an official from the city of Austin, uh, well, Austin and Travis County, because one council person from the city came and one of the representatives from the county were there to basically say, hey, with this new requirement, we're not going to be able to expand the resources that we wanted to for those that are in unhoused situation. It's going to limit how much we can contribute you know, as a government as a taxing jurisdiction to this particular problem. And they're they're telling that to all these different providers that are in there, like I said before, the VA, Integral Care, LifeWorks, these other providers that are receiving federal HUD dollars to let us know that, hey, we're not going to be able to help as much as we would want to, because we're going to get cut at the knees by this legislation that was there. And so, Um, ECHO and those different groups, they're the ones that are really uh, helping on the legislative side, on that advocacy advocacy side, to really push that forward. But when events happen in the local area, so in the city of Austin, before they actually purchased those uh, hotels, like these are old defunct hotels that they were going to rechange into shelter environments, uh, they had a, a big public forum about it. You know, there were people coming in to give their say as members of the public. And I wrote a letter in. We had volunteers that were going up and actually gave speeches uh, at the the city council. I mean, they were virtual speeches, of course, because COVID. But actually trying to relay the situation of those that we see every single month, first Sunday of every month, we see folks, we get to know them. I have the numbers of several people. I received a call earlier today from a gentleman um, asking about when we were doing bus passes uh, again. And I was letting him know what our schedule was going to be. And we just talked for a little bit. Uh, And he's, you know, he's been somebody we've known for years out there and is slowly bettering his situation, but he still needs help along that way. But to be able to relay that directly to those that are in power that can make the decisions with a stroke of a pen to say, We're going to allocate this part of this budget to do this particular program. And it's going to cost X millions of dollars, but it's worth doing so. And so, you know, we're involved on that side, not on the state. Uh, level, but typically on that local level, when it comes to laws they're trying to pass to criminalize homelessness, about where they can be, in what state mm-hmm. they can be, what the, what can they have with them? Um, no, we've already had a stint in Texas where the governor used the state troopers to, well, essentially seize the personal property belongings of people under certain state highways in an effort to get them to move away from the downtown area and it worked for this small amount of time before they flooded right back you know into those areas because that's where the resources are in downtown what are you going to do when people don't have transportation and most of the services are right there in downtown Mm -hmm. so uh so there is involvement there you know it's not as much as i would like it to be but you know you have to be involved to you know to Address the policymakers and really make those stories known because they're so they can be so far away from it that it's hard for them to visualize what this reality actually is. You know, yeah. you know, pictures and news stories aside, hearing you know those stories right in front of your face makes a heck of a difference. And we're glad it had an effect uh, when they chose to go ahead and expand that program and buy those shelter hotels. So, yeah, uh, it can work. <laughs>
0: I was definitely going to ask you about uh, the uh, any type of pushback that you all get. You said you had a community meeting, with people giving speeches from the other side. I mean, I would ass- again, I don't want to get too political here, but, but I, yeah. I would assume that many conservative type people are like, uh, you know, these homeless people that should get jobs and, you know, you know, listen, they had their shot at life, and this is what they chose, or, you know, for whatever. So, how do you, how do you guys deal with those types of of people?
2: Oh wait. That's <laughs> that, that, so. That's one of those things that gets me to that anger that Tracy was talking about. <laughs> uh, that, the bootstraps type of thing, not in my backyard, is another yeah. very common thing. And so, the, where, even where the hotels were going to be purchased, you had community members like, "Well, that's a little close to my side." And what about my property values, crime? Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. hey, blah blah right. blah, that type of thing. And so. There are people that, you know, they say they want to help, but just not here, you know, we want to help. I heard
1: heard even more creative um, ones. Right. So on there's an app called Nextdoor and you hear a lot of horrible types of arguments there. And the one that I thought was most insidious, if I had to, like, give a, a blue ribbon to the most insidious argument, it was. This really isn't best for homeless people to be put into a hotel. I looked at the location and it's really far away from all the resources and services. So this isn't really helping them. So you have this argument, which is don't house them in these hotels, leave them under a bridge uh, because I care about them and this is not a good solution, right? I mean, that's how they were framing this argument. Like they don't don't just wanna come out and say, I just don't, you know, I, I don't want to spend the money on this hotel. But this right. will be the same person who also says, I don't want that camp um, near, a, you know, near just down the road underneath the interstate uh, where it's right close to my neighborhood. Uh, and there's all kinds, of, you know, I don't want to see the tents. Why are they allowed to have these tents? It, it looks so disheveled, which I have all these. Ten- and so it's just this whole thing of I don't want to have to see it. Yeah. I don't want to have to yeah. pay for it. Right, I don't right, want right. Them to do anything about it. Just, I don't know if they expect them to just go and die somewhere or what the plan <laughs> is. I mean, this is how it Jeez. sounds. If you're right, you're right, not right. willing to put money to, to address the problem. You don't know. No solution makes you happy and you don't want to see it is what it's just boiling down to. Yeah. Uh, it it's. And, and then the thing that I think really galls me is that, every now and then there'll be some story where somebody posts on next door and they will say, I had this run in with somebody. And it was really scary and they looked like a homeless person. Right. And then you'll get this whole thread of people just going, just a lot of anger and hate toward homeless populations. And in the meantime, the reality is that a person who is homeless is more likely to be Assaulted or aggressed against by somebody who is housed, so you have this inverse, you know, fear. I guess of of people that are that are on. Un- you've got like people that are living in a neighborhood who are afraid of the people who are the most marginalized, and the most at risk, mm. as opposed to the reality, which is you know you're you're more likely to be um, to have criminal conduct against you from one of your own neighbors. And the people that are living under the bridge are more likely to to have trouble from somebody that's one of our neighbors, and yeah. yet they're painted as the, you know, the horrible, scary person.
2: Right, yeah. the the villain. That's yeah in the story that. And it's and, just
1: people that need help.
2: Yeah. Right, and especially we 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 if you actually talk to somebody, it's like when I see those posts that infuriate me. I'm, I'm it's few things can get me to that level, but that's one that definitely will push that right button and i have to refrain from coming commenting in the way that i wish to at least initially but it's i think one piece of it is a lot of people look at folks that are experiencing homelessness thinking that they're so far removed from them like these folks are so far removed when the reality is for so many households in the us you know w- just one paycheck missed mm. can disrupt Their housing stability, their food stability, all of a sudden they will find themselves in this precarious situation, having to see if they can stay with a friend or a family member. But not everyone has the luxury of having someone that can take them in in that regard. And then like it's it's. Talking and understanding what people are going through is probably the easiest way to dispel those notions because you do get that pushback to say, well, when you're going out here, you're giving them some food or something. They're just getting comfortable out there on the street. And it's like, have you talked to anyone out there about what their comfort level is right. in their situation or what they're trying to do about it? What things have gotten in their way to stop them Uh from improving it from, you know, caseworkers that won't call back or that are so overloaded that they don't have time to meet with you. They have to meet with you in a few weeks from now and you're supposed to survive until then, right. which is a reality. You know, that's right. not that's not some limited thing. That's the actual reality. There's so many people that have need and so few caseworkers, let alone the places where you can place them into housing is also limited. So you have these bottlenecks that are there and It's just it's an amazing situation. It's so disheartening to see, but it's something that's worth fighting for and advocating for and trying to change that situation so that this pipeline to homelessness isn't so huge. And our exits, as I mentioned before, can start growing and how many exits we can have out of this homelessness and stopping people from becoming homeless in the first place. You know, that diversion in the first place is also a huge point to start.
1: Well, Have and you- it's like, when you talked about the pushback, one thing I wanted to point out, it could actually be the other way around, Phil, where a person does realize that this is precarious and they use vilifying the person who's unhoused as a means to say, this can't happen to me. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I realize how how my own security is on a knife's edge. Mm-hmm. But if I can convince myself that you did things wrong right. and that's how you ended up there, then all I have to do is the right things, and I will not end up there. And it reminds me of um, something that it's similar to to a formula that I someone pointed out to me with victim blaming, right? So if I if I say you were s- assaulted because you went out and drank too much or maybe you date the wrong kind of men, or maybe the way you dress is too provocative. So if I can find something wrong with the victim to say that they are somehow responsible or they brought this on themselves, mm-hmm. then, all I, then I can say that I protect myself by doing all the right things, right? So I'm gonna do all the right things and this will never happen to me, which is completely wrong <laughs> because these things happen to everyone but if I can just pretend that it's because you did something to bring it on yourself, then I can say that, you know, I'm doing the right things and, and this won't happen to me. And it, it's a false sense of security, but people right. often use false security to make themselves feel better.
0: Yeah. 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 No, I definitely, I, I definitely agree with that. And um, speaking of that false sense and being on a knife's edge and so close to a one paycheck away, uh, have you, dealt with people who have gone homeless because of COVID, right? Because they've lost their jobs. I mean, that's gotta be, it's gotta be huge as well, right? Not just because of mental illness or whatever, but people who've just, you know, their, their jobs are gone. Um, and now they're living, I know people who've been living in cars and and waiting who have jobs or living, who are living in cars, you know, because minimum wage is so low and they're not getting the hours or or whatever. So
2: yeah, there's people that, are experiencing homelessness that do have jobs. Like we've we've purchased work boots for people that are actively working out there and they're still unhoused because – You know, there's no affordable housing around. So even though they have some amount of income, they don't have enough to be able to get an apartment near to where they work. There was a gentleman that worked in fast food and there was one that was in construction. It was the same type of message. We got them some work shoes, like the non-slip shoes for the one that worked at a fast food restaurant and steel toed boots for the individual that was going into construction. But they had no housing. You know, they didn't have that type of infrastructure, but they had found some work and they were going to, you know, try to claw their way back uh, using that. And so we have seen a few. Uh, I've seen some in Austin that were as a result of job loss in COVID. And it was the same kind of thing. If these, if they had had family in the area or, you know, a friend that was willing to take them in, stuff like that, you know, you can have a couch to be on while you get yourself together. But if you don't have that or if you're alone, several years ago, that was a young lady. Uh, pre-COVID that, you know, just got laid off and she was trying to find a job. She was trying, she had cell phone, she had a car, she had a house, internet, the whole nine yards. So all the advantages that you would expect someone that's looking for a job to have, uh, let alone food, et et cetera. And she couldn't find a job in time by the time she was forced, uh, forcefully evicted from her residence. So she shifted to her car and started to park downtown and go to the library because she still had a car, she you know had ID, she had all the vital documents, all those kind of things, and it snowballed for her because she couldn't find work fast enough, and her, t- her car got towed uh, once it ran out of gas and she could no longer move it. You know, couldn't pay for a meter or anything. Uh, I remember her letting me know that that the car was now gone, and she couldn't afford to get it back because you know what income was there to get the car back to even do anything about it, and so it it's a situation that people, you know, as Tracy was saying, a false sense of security that you kind of push these people away to say that they deserve it in whatever reason that makes sense to that individual or that they deserved it, drugs, mental illness or whatever. But the fact is it can be as simple as not having a large support network that can really support you uh, in large ways because not everybody's able to do that in the first place, even if you do have friends in the area some people don't are still on that knife's edge that you coming into their home might tip them in a bad way as well. And so rather than separating yourselves from so many people that are unhoused, understand that they are very 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 similar to you. They're just like you. You know, mm-hmm. they were working once. They had, you know, family, they had a house, they had food, they had lights on when they walked into the room. But, you know, one situation, one unexpected thing can trounce all of that, all of a sudden, and throw all of your stabilities that you've built up, that you felt confident about thus far, can send them all tumbling away. And if you're not careful, you may not be able to catch up. People like to think that they, well, I would just go here. Well, I would just be able to call so and so, you know, old Tony down the road, you know, I could sleep on that couch, blah, blah, blah. But When you're actually in that situation, you may find that a lot of the things that you're depending on to make you feel more secure are not as secure as you thought they were. Mm -hmm. Because that's exactly the experience of so many people on the street that then may get alcohol or drugs or something like that after the fact, not everyone does. But when you see that, it's like, understand that that may be them trying to cope with the stress Mm -hmm. and the depression of being in the situation when they felt just like you at one point in their lives as secure as you did.
1: I want to bring up something that you said, Phil, Um, just recently, we were talking about the idea, there was a a little group discussion and Phil and I were both in it. And some of the folks were talking about what happened during, not during COVID, during the winter storm here in Texas. And they were saying how um, some people couldn't heat their homes because their power went out. And so they would go into their cars and they'd be charging their devices and they would know that, they'd, you know, walk out of their car, be freezing, and they'd know that going in their house, it was still going to be freezing, because it wasn't, there was no heat, right? So they were just like, I don't, I didn't have any place to go. Some of them were going and staying with friends. A lot of people left, just abandoned their houses and went to go live with a relative for, you know, three, four days, or, you know, a friend for a couple of days. I I had somebody that let me just go and take a shower at one point. And one of the things that they were discussing was that idea of how when you go somewhere cold like you go to your work and you park your car and you know it's freezing and and the wind is blowing and it's really horrible outside and you step out of your car and you kind of have that and you brace yourself just long enough to get yourself in that warm building and so what phil was talking about during this discussion was imagine that there's no warm building that that you're bracing yourself and you know that You're just in it till this weather ends. There is no respite for you. There is no place where you're going to go, where you're going to have that security that this is just temporary. And that's the kind of stress that he's talking about when, when you have this sort of, I mean, anything that you're going through, if you know that it's temporary, if you know it's going to end, that is so much easier to deal with than looking at a situation and saying i don't know if this is going to end
0: yeah listen i thank you guys for coming on the show really really powerful conversation i hope that everyone develops the compassion that you all have um so if we can end off with you guys just uh, telling us um wh- where we can contact you all at, encourage other people <laughs> to join in whether it's you know v- uh, voluntary groups or whatever just just be, be a part of the solution and not part of the problem
1: yeah you can contact i mean foundation beyond belief is available online um i don't have their link it's like immediately handy but we will definitely provide that to you. I assume you do like description links or things like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I'll do yeah, yeah. Like so we can definitely send you um, probably more than one, but definitely <laughs> FBV's link, and then Phil will be the the person who can probably load it up with all the other goodies that <laughs> we would have if people want to get involved or um, or reach out because they have a local community group that they think would benefit from networking. Mm.
2: For sure. Like, yeah, it's definitely a foundation beyond org uh, is the main website. So you could, or just look it up on Google foundation beyond belief. And, you know, it's of course, don- donation links there for all the work that's there. But if you're in a local area and you know, it's always best to research in your area to find out who's active, you know, in that place, meet up, you know, use your tools you have at a resource, but if there's no one there and you want to create something on FBB, if you go into, you know, the volunteer side, that, that tab, they can talk. uh, There's different notes and different PDFs about ways you can get started in your local community about making your impact. So there's ideas of different events that you can do, how to go about them, what their pitfalls are, stuff like that. Uh, We're working on some new ones right now to, examine you know, what's the best way to start if you want to help out those that are unhoused in your area, uh, the folks experiencing homelessness there, about going what that process looks like, looking at the local laws about what you can and cannot do, where you can, where you cannot do it, stuff like that. So some of that information can be found on FBB's main website. You can always reach out to uh, me or Tracy uh, there at Foundation Beyond Belief. There's some contact us information. I'm Phil at FoundationBeyondBelief.org. Um, and so you can always send me something there if you're interested, but there's there's so much work to do. And you know it's what humanism is all about, about us pulling our heads together to rise to the situations that we see around us. Because if we don't do something about it, nothing's gonna change. It takes these human hands to look at these human issues and come up with solutions to solve them with data and metrics at our back to make sure that we're doing it well.
0: Well said, thank you so much. I appreciate you guys coming on this.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us. That was awesome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Police reform
0: is more than just a trending topic. My name is Lawrence Hunter. I'm a retired police captain from the state of Connecticut, and I've written a new book called Police Reform. And I talk about the evolution of law enforcement here in America and what changes need to be made in order to improve the relationship between the police and the communities that they serve. Over the past few months, it has become increasingly more important and more evident that there's something amiss in the ride between the police and the communities that they serve. So whether you're about defunding the police or defending the police, if you're about Blue Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter, no matter what side of the fence you happen to sit on, make sure that you pick up your copy of Police Perform today.